Today, we begin a study of the New Testament letter of 2 Corinthians. Acts chapter 18 tells us about the founding of this church on Paul's second missionary journey. And he continues to pastor this church primarily through his letters. And what we're going to study is really the fourth letter that Paul wrote to these Christians in Corinth. He wrote his first letter probably four to five years after the church began, and his primary purpose was to caution them about associating with immoral persons, and remember that Corinth was a a city that was filled in such a way. Uh, The result of that letter was misunderstanding and questions. We don't have any copies of that letter today. And then he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians, sometime around A.D. 55 or 56. And the purpose was to correct some disorders in the church and to answer more questions. The outcome of that letter was that the situation got worse. Uh, And as a result, Paul made a brief visit, but he was opposed and his counsel was rejected. And so he wrote a third letter, another one that we don't have today in which he severely rebuked his opposition and called for repentance. He sent that letter by the hand of his fellow worker, Titus. The result of that letter was that the majority of the Christians in the church at Corinth repented of their sin. And Paul begins to head for Corinth, you know, not having heard anything from Titus. He doesn't know the outcome of that letter. And uh, so he gets on his way and he finds Titus, in Macedonia, and he hears about the Corinthians' repentance. And so he sits down and he writes his fourth letter, what we call 2 Corinthians. He expresses his joy over their repentance. He he offers encouragement to them, and he defends his apostleship. Many New Testament scholars believe that this is the most personal letter that Paul wrote in all his ministry. And he agonizes over those who oppose him and his apostolic ministry. He's going to go out of his way to recount all of that he has suffered for their account. He defends his apostleship and his work for their behalf. So there's a major theme that runs all through this letter. We're going to keep coming back to it over and over again. So that it should memorize this little phrase. And that's this. Christ is our strength in weakness. Christ is our strength and weakness. Just embed that in your mind, please, until we finish this letter. Here's what's happening as Paul writes this letter. From a human perspective, it looks like Paul's ministry is about ready to unravel, to fall apart. The Corinthians are under attack by false teachers, and, and they're actually in revolt against the apostle himself. The Galatians have fallen prey to another gospel, and Paul has to address that. Paul had to flee from Ephesus after a riot broke out because of his preaching there. And on top of all of that, his health begins to fail. And so here's a man who's feeling rejection, confusion. His health is almost to the point of death. In a sense, you could say that Paul's life and ministry is hanging in the balance. I mean, the pressures of what's going on in the Corinthian church must have weighed heavily upon him. The false teachers are influencing the Corinthians to doubt whether Paul is even a true apostle. 
For example, he doesn't take money from them. He, he supported himself through tent making. But in their minds, and what they've been told by the false teachers is, listen, a true apostle is going to expect you to support him. Uh, you know, they began to believe all these bad reports that are being given about Paul. They hint that maybe he's even lining his own pockets with this offering that he's collecting to take to Jerusalem to help out with the saints there because of famine. Let me ask you, if you were Paul, undergoing all of these things, all of these circumstances, what type of letter might you write? I think I know the kind of letter that I might write. Probably not Paul's style here. But we're going to see in this letter tenderness and compassion, even while being very direct. I mean, Paul wrote this letter to encourage the church, uh, and yet he never soft pedals the truth. He always finds a place for both of these together. Now, by the way, this is a great how-to book. Because there are four themes that stem off of this main one, Christ is our strength and weakness. For example, you're going to see how to recognize and defeat Satan. That This book tells you who Satan is, how he operates, and how we have to defeat his schemes and how to do that. It's going to tell you how to experience God's comfort. And Paul is going to say again and again in this letter that God doesn't just comfort you so you will feel comfortable. He comforts you so you can turn around and comfort others. But Paul is going to mention 48 different things that he's suffering that are stinging his life. You're also going to see how to cope with criticism. Paul faced the stinging effect of criticism. So we need to learn from his example as we face criticism in our own lives. And then you're going to see another how-to, how to give financially God's way. Two entire chapters are devoted to this theme. And he's going to tell you how we're to give, how much we're to give, how often we're to give, the rewards of giving, and so on. So some real practical things that are going to come out in this book related to those of us that know Christ. Now, before we consider the main theme of the passage this morning, I want you to notice how Paul begins. If you find your way to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, if you grab a Bible in front of you, page 1225, 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, Paul opens with a doxology, with a note of praise. And so in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. There's not a lot about his circumstances that would be cause for worship. And so what Paul does is he praises the God who's in control of his circumstances. And he tells us in that little verse several things about this one to whom he focuses worship. First of all, he says he's God. That phrase, blessed be God, occurs in only two other places in all of the New Testament. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul praises God for what he has done in the past. So it's praise for past blessings. In 1 Peter 1.3, Peter praises God for what he'll do in the future. Uh, there's future blessings that Peter praises God for. And then here, Paul praises God for present blessings. 
So he's going to talk about things that he's currently experiencing that leads him to praise and worship God. The second thing he know, we note is that he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because of Jesus Christ that we can call God our father. That we can go to him as our children, as his children. And so God sees us in his son. He loves us just as much as he loves his son. So you and I are precious to the Father, uh, and it's all because of this relationship that Jesus has to the Father, now that we can have to the Father. God will see to it that the pressures of life will not destroy you. The third thing that he says to us is that he's the Father of mercies. Now to the Jews, the phrase the Father of means the originator of. For example, in John 8, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. That is, he's the originator of lies. So when Paul says that, that God is the father of mercies, it's because all mercy originates from him. And to him alone can we go and receive mercy. Look at this from the Old Testament book of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You're tempted to believe that, that the opposite is true, aren't you, at times? You know, we screw up so many times and we think, has God run out of patience and mercy? But no, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And lastly, He's the God of all comfort. And this brings us to the main theme of this passage and the message that I want to focus in on this morning. Because these verses give us a framework of understanding for those who are suffering. So wherever you find yourself today, I know that many of you have gone through difficult times or going through difficult times. This is going to be a framework for you today. See, suffering is a fact of life. Dr. Scott Peck, in his best-selling book, The Road Less Traveled, begins with these words, life is difficult. This is a great truth, he writes, one of the greatest truths. And the most foundational explanation for the cause of suffering and life's difficulties, listen, is theological, is theological. And it boils down to this statement that we are fallen people living in a fallen world. That's not just a trite cliche. We are fallen people living in a fallen world. And one consequence of the historic fall is suffering. And yet it seems that we evangelical Christians who acknowledge and accept the fact of the fall often act as if its consequences do not exist. And we fail to see the ongoing universal consequence of a rebellious and wrong choice. So Paul writes to the Romans and he says that the whole world groans because of that one sin in the Garden of Eden. 21st century American Christianity promotes the myth that suffering should not exist. That spiritual Christians with enough faith should not suffer. That suffering has no purpose. Eugene Peterson, writing about Psalm 130 in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says this, We live in a time when everyone's goal is to be perpetually healthy and constantly happy. If any one of us fails to live up to the standards that are advertised as normative, we are labeled as a problem to be solved. 
and a host of well-intentioned people rush to try out various cures on us. Or we are looked on as an enigma to be unraveled, in which case we're subjected to endless discussions in which our lives are examined by zealous researchers for the clue that will account for our lack of health or happiness. Ivan Illich, in a recent interview, said, you know, there's an American myth that denies suffering and the sense of pain. It acts as if they should not be, and hence it devalues the experience of suffering. But this myth denies our encounter with reality. If you're suffering, there's something wrong with you. Your faith isn't strong enough, right? You've heard that? Henry Nouwen, a wonderful writer of the 20th century, said this, many people suffer because of the false supposition on which they base their lives. That supposition is that there should be no fear or loneliness, no confusion or doubt. But these sufferings can only be dealt with creatively when they're understood as wounds integral to our human condition. As I said earlier, the Apostle Paul knew what it was to suffer to hurt deeply, to feel the pressure of merciless trials and tribulations. Now, his situation was quite different from yours and mine. In one sense, as we read after his conversion, he really was called to suffer. Paul knew that. He speaks of that often. But that doesn't diminish the reality of your suffering, of your difficulties, of your troubles at all. And we can learn much from Paul's perspective on dealing with suffering. So let's go back to the text. As I read, I want you to count how many times the word comfort or comforted shows up in verses 3 to 7. Okay, limber up your fingers here. Both hands, I want you to count them. Here we go, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. How many times? Ten. Ten times. Ten times. Comfort, comfort. I think Paul's trying to make a point. <laughs> now, the word comfort doesn't just mean sympathy. God doesn't pat us on the back and, and give us a piece of candy or a toy to distract our attention from suffering. He puts strength into our hearts so that we can face trials and suffering. Paul Powell, in his book, Why Me, Lord, writes, Some of us feel that Christianity is a miracle drug that should make our lives easy, but it isn't. The purpose of Christianity is not to exempt us from difficulty, but to produce in us a character adequate to meet life as it comes. Our English word comes from two Latin words meaning with strength. The Greek word is paraklesis. It means to appeal, to exhort, to encourage. So comfort then is an urging, a a compelling, an encouragement. 
which strengthens and consoles the sufferer. It's the same word used in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraklikos, the one called alongside to help. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room on his last night, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, here's our word, helper, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So when you find yourself distressed, discouraged, in the midst of trials and suffering, isn't it it so easy just to look at yourself and your feelings and the problem or situation around you? But the first step we must take is to look by faith to the Lord. And and realize all that God is to us. It's from this perspective that Corey Ten Boom, suffering in a Nazi death camp, could write, There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. It's this perspective that David expressed in Psalm 121 I will lift my eyes up to the hills from whence my help cometh, my help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, before Paul ever begins to talk about the experience of suffering, he talks about God. The worst thing that can happen, uh, that can result from your suffering or trials, your troubles, is a distorted view of the character and intentions of God. I'm always blown away when I look at Moses' life. You know, you talk about a guy that had troubles. You know, the burdens that he bore in the calling that God had for him. And yet he gets toward the end of his life. And among his last words that he pens are these. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Oh, that we could come to the end of our lives. And look back and say with Moses, God, you were just. You were upright. There is nothing that you did wrong towards me. Now, Paul goes on in this first chapter of 2 Corinthians to suggest three ways in which God might use our suffering. You can look at them ways he'll use. You can look at them as purposes. But I want you to just think on these for a moment. Let's go back to the text. I want you to follow again. I'm going to start again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now drop down to verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Let me suggest three things. 
the way God might use your suffering, the number one way is that we might comfort others. What happens so much when we suffer? We turn inward, don't we? We think only of ourselves and we become cisterns rather than channels. And yet one of the reasons for trials, as I see it in the New Testament, is that we might learn to be channels of blessings to others by encouraging them and in comforting them. Because God has encouraged us, we can encourage others. Notice that Paul makes it clear that we do not need to experience the same trials in order to share God's comfort. If you've experienced God's comfort, then you can comfort those who are in any affliction. Now listen, I, I'm not saying that you can or honestly should say to someone, I know what you're going through, unless you have. That's the worst thing to say. But you can say, God met me in my need when I was going through such and such, and this is what I learned. This is what I experienced. Here's where I saw God supporting me. You can say that. And when we comfort someone, it doesn't mean that we just commiserate with them. That does little good. Don't you love it when you're going through difficult times and someone comes along and just wants to have a pity party with you? doesn't help at all. But we can point them to a God who loves them, to a God who, 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 who's, who's there for them, a God who will walk with them through whatever difficulty they're experiencing. The other thing we see from Paul is that as sufferings increase, so does the supply of God's grace. Paul says that through Christ, our comfort overflows. Let me add something else here. God has ample grace for every need, but he doesn't give it in advance. Um, look at this from Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the idea here is help when you need it. Timely help. God doesn't supply grace for a non-existent need. But when you find yourself in need, the writer of Hebrews says, go boldly to the throne and ask for it. A second way in which God may use our suffering is that we might not trust in ourselves. How easy it is, isn't it, to trust in our strength, in our wisdom, in our ability to get out of the tough places in life. But I think that part of God's purpose in here is to bring us to the end of ourselves, to exhaust our means so that somehow we take credit for what's happening. You know, all of our clever ways of coping is that we might learn what it is to be dependent upon Him. Now, I have to tell you that I think in all of this, there's a humility that has to come in the process. There's a humility that is willing to submit to God even in a painful situation, that trusts Him to bring good out of it, for Him to ultimately deliver us from it. See, only when Paul honestly faced his inadequacy did he discover God's adequacy. Only when he lost his strength could he then discover God's power and his strength. So that he would write later, when I am weak, then I'm strong. What an oxymoron. We live in a town that, that, that applauds strength, right? But Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul was confident from here, that God would deliver him. The word that he used means to help out of distress, to save and protect. 
But you know what? We often see deliverance in only one way, and that's deliverance out of a situation. But deliverance may be quite different from that. It might be deliverance through or deliverance in. Remember the story, James was beheaded, and yet Peter was released from prison, got out of prison. They were both delivered, but it was different. God will deliver us from our trials, but other times he wants to deliver you through them or in them. And then I think there's a third purpose for our suffering in God's usage, and that is that we might learn to give thanks. Now, what does giving thanks have to do with this? Well, I think it demonstrates our trust, and it releases us from the anxiety that we're in this thing all alone. So it says, God is in control. God knows my circumstances. You know, God understands even though I do not. Uh, it believes what Paul wrote in chapter 8 of Romans, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. In the Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. So bless you prison for having been in my life. You see, the power of giving thanks releases us into the arms of our loving Heavenly Father for whatever purposes that He chooses in our life. Now, as I wrap up this morning, let me say to those of you who are undergoing the trials of suffering today, God really cares. You may be tempted as you look at your circumstance to doubt that, to disbelieve that. But I can only point you to the God that's revealed in the Bible, a God who loves you, a God whose son died for you, a God who has welcomed you into his family if you've placed your trust in Christ. This is a God who will meet you in the depth of your despair, in the depths of your situation, who will ultimately deliver you in or through your life circumstances. But in his time in his way, to accomplish his purposes in your life. To the rest of you, I would say, let us be the hands of God to touch and bless and comfort the afflicted because God wants to use us, as he did using you yesterday, to a family that was grieving the loss of a loved one. Now, I'm going to wrap up, and I'm going to give you five quick principles. No, we're not here through the Redskins game today. Five quick principles on which you should think before, if possible, but certainly in the midst of suffering. Number one is reaffirm the conviction that God is good. You're going to be very challenged with that truth in the midst of difficult times. Job, in the Bible, suffered great pain and loss, but what did he do? He fell on his knees and he bowed to God and he worshipped God. Affirm that God is good. Second, remember, it's only the seventh inning. The game isn't over yet. Eugene Peterson writes, We are able to face, acknowledge, accept, and live through suffering, for we know that it can never be ultimate. It can never constitute the bottom line. 
God is at the foundation and God is at the boundaries. Third, entrust yourself to God's purposes in your suffering. Be willing to move ahead even if you don't understand the why. Dr. James Dobson, in his book, When God Doesn't Make Sense, writes, My strongest advice is that each of us acknowledge before the crisis occurs, if possible, that our trust in him must be independent of our understanding. There's nothing wrong with trying to understand, but we must not lean on our ability to comprehend. Fourth, guard your heart against bitterness. Suffering and trials will either crush you or conform you. You will either become better or bitter. It's going to drive you in one of those two directions. So guard your heart. And then lastly, learn the release of giving thanks. This is one of the most powerful, significant lessons that I've ever learned in my life in dealing with difficult situations. It is the power of giving thanks. Because it acknowledges that God is in control, not me. And that I will trust him to work his outcome however he wants to do it, whenever he wants to do it. Consider these comforting words from the psalmist today. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Some of you might be living this right now. And may God grant to you a deep sense of his presence, of his comfort and encouragement. And use the body of Christ to come alongside to encourage you. Would you pray with me? God, we worship you as the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just don't understand so much of what happens in our lives. And why you choose that some would suffer more than others, it's beyond our comprehension. And yet, God, we believe what your word says about you, that you're a God who cares, a God who loves, a merciful, compassionate God, and I pray for people here today, Lord, that may be going through a difficult time. Would you bring your perspective to them through your word today? Would you encourage them by your Holy Spirit and through the lives of other brothers and sisters in Christ? Lord, might we turn to you in the midst of suffering and be willing to wait for whatever it is you want to accomplish through that in our lives. And may we affirm that you are good that you are great, a God worthy of our trust. And so we commit our lives to you for another week, Father, and pray that you would be pleased to just work in and through us, that our lives might be blessings to others. Make us aware of those around us going through difficult times. Help us to come alongside to encourage. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.